Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. The healthcare system is hard enough to navigate without having chronic illness diagnoses to boot. Feeling all at sea and looking for direction, advice, and deeper understanding? From a medical specialty glossary to tips on talking to your health insurance providers, download your free copy of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Okay, guys, I want to talk about coaching. I recently connected with an awesome executive and life coach, and her name is Jenna Chieko, a graduate of Dr. Martha Beck's program with a background in psychology and law. She's a former tech general counsel and chief of staff who also worked for the Obama administration. Jenna inspires clients to step into their best lives by helping them access their inner strengths, clear the cobwebs holding them back, and cultivate a dream big growth mindset. She is also a life Sherpa for navigating change. You know who I know who has big dreams and is navigating massive changes now more than ever with coronavirus? We Spoonies. Jenna works virtually, and she's offering 10% off to new clients who enroll and mention code INVISIBLE. Her rates are reasonable, and she's dedicated to help us rise to the top. Go to jennachieco.com, that's G-E-N-A-C-H-I-E-C-O.com, for more. A note for listeners that this episode includes brief discussion of suicide as part of a larger conversation about mental health. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with a double header. I have got two guys on this show today who live with type 1 diabetes You may recognize their names if you listen to Bolus Maximus, which is an awesome new podcast they've come out with. They are friends. They are advocates for diabetes. They're going to talk to us all about it. Please welcome Brandon Denson and Matt Caro. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, we're (laughs) super excited. Thank you. Yeah. I'm so happy to have you here. We've been like back and forth a bit. For those um, who may be familiar with Trust Me, I'm Sick, we got in touch because Matt is actually one of the subjects of that documentary, which is awesome. And um, he's really good friends with Brandon. You guys are going to talk to us about your friendship because I'm excited to hear about this. And they they obviously advocate together and, and talk together about living with type one. So let's start from the top of the story. I would love to find out when and how you both realized that you had something going on health-wise and how you have managed your health since then. And I'll let, I don't know if either of you have a preference for going first. Oh, Brandon's pointing at Matt. So go for it, Matt. Tell us, tell us about this diagnosis and treatment journey. Yeah, sure. So I'll keep it short and sweet. Uh, my parents, I came from a medical background. Thank you for the introduction, Lauren. It's, it's a pleasure to be here oh. and, and with you. So thank you. Absolutely. Um, it's a total treat. Like, I came from a medical family, meaning uh, my father was an ear, nose and throat physician. My mother was a nurse. My brother was a doctor. Wow. So my parents went away on a trip. Uh, they went to a conference every year. They were gone for about six days. And when I, when they got 
back, I had lost roughly 15 pounds in about a week. Wow. And what happened was all How of the nutrients. How old were you at the time, by the way? I was 16. So I was okay, a sophomore. Teenager. Yeah. And then, um, so basically, uh, my parents recognized right away that something was wrong. My, my mother said to me what was going on. When they heard what was happening to me, I was drinking like two liter bottles of Gatorade during one football game. Um, you know, your, your thirst is unquenchable. You just, there's no way mm-hmm. you're ever going to feel um, satisfied. And then you pee a lot and that's where all your nutrients are going. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. And so uh, now 17 years later, uh, I've been successfully living with diabetes um, and uh, healthier now than I have been in the past. Uh, but treat, treatment has changed a bit. And so, uh, yeah, we'll, we can get into that after. But um, there's a st- stark correlation between Brandon and I age-wise, uh, both when we were diagnosed and uh, where we are now. So flip yeah. over to my, my partner here. Yeah, Brandon, why don't you tell us? Because you were also diagnosed as a teenager, right? That is correct. And uh, Lauren, thanks for having us on again. And uh, mm. thank you for the wonderful introduction as well. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are great. <laughs> Matt's um, having a dance party over there. <laughs> so, so yeah, I was actually diagnosed uh, right after I had just turned 17. I was going into my senior year of high school. As always is the case, it's never a perfect time uh, to be diagnosed with anything. Uh, but at that time, it definitely wasn't the best timing considering I was going into my senior year of high school. I hadn't narrowed down what university I wanted to go to, but I still mm-hmm. had dreams and aspirations on graduating from college and going on to play, to play football, um, division one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the symptoms that, that I kind of got smacked with right out the gate, um, that kind of brought awareness to everything was, I was urinating a lot. Uh, I did have dry mouth. Um, and I also, I also was, was pretty thirsty and I knew I wasn't drinking that much, uh, mm-hmm. far as, you know, how many times I was urinating. And I remember I was urinating a lot and I came home. I told my mother it was after practice and I just came off a of knee surgery. Um, so I really wasn't practicing and I wasn't drinking that much water. So I thought something was kind of odd. And then, uh, the next day she told me if it continued to let her know. So the next day, it, it even intensified and uh, we were at a, I was at a friend of mine's house. His dad used to always uh, work, work the day shift. So we would go over there and play video games after school. I mean, after practice and things like that. And uh, I noticed we were playing a game of Madden and probably um, in the course of 20 minutes, I probably used the bathroom about 15 times. And I was oh, like, that's a lot. I yeah. was like, Some, something's not right. So I called my mom. She told me to come home. And really, that's that's how everything got kicked off. You know, at that time, I still didn't know that I had type one diabetes. But, you know, once I got up to the to the to the doctors and then they sent us to the hospital like that, that was all she wrote from there. Mm. So you got the diagnosis pretty quickly after your mom sort of cottoned on to stuff. Did she have medical experience, too? Like, how did she know that this was something to monitor? Just, I guess, just mom being moms, you yeah. know. The mom, Mother's no best. Mom, mom's no best. Yeah, <laughs> it's a sixth sense, I hear. Yeah. So, um, how have you guys? I'd love for you to talk to us about like how you connected and like how you have worked on maintaining your health since your diagnoses. Like, this is kind of a 
tumultuous time for you both to be getting diagnosed and kind of late for, from what I understand with type one diabetes, most people are diagnosed when they're much younger kids, but you were both teenagers. And that's a time when like, I mean, there's so much happening hormonally, let alone (laughs) with anything else, right? Like to have to be worrying about a life-changing diagnosis. So like, what was that like emotionally and how has treatment helped your health continue on? And I'm sure it's changed over the years too, because like things like pumps and different uh, sort of automations and diabetes have developed a lot over the last decade, decade and a half. So talk to us a little bit about that if you can. So I'll give you the breakdown, Brandon. Matt talking. Yep. Brandon likes for me to give the breakdown about how we got connected. I, I just, I've played it through my brain so many times. I'll say this. I'll answer the question. The reason Bolus Maximus exists is because when we were diagnosed, there wasn't support for teenage males. Yeah. Uh, Instagram wasn't a thing. Now, uh, there may not have been specific support for women diagnosed at that same age. However, women are, are generally, you know, I mean, I mean to speak very respectfully here. Um, women are typically a little more open with their emotions. When when you're diagnosed at 16, um, you know, imagine getting the the largest, you know, the largest thing that you've ever been handed, and, and you have to quickly hide it. Well, this and, is toxic masculinity in action, right? Right. So um, essentially, Brandon and I are diagnosed around the same time we go through very different paths to end up in the same place. Hmm. And so 2017, 2016, 2017, as the diabetes community becomes more prevalent on Instagram, Facebook, all of the social media channels, um, Brandon and I had both been working for, with individual entities. And we had been connecting just, you know, like direct messages. Hey, what's up? I, I reached out to him though. And I was like, Hey man, we we're on the same page with like energy. Hmm. We, we probably could do something with that. And to, to be completely honest, like some of the really powerful conversations that we have, um, I distinctly remember traveling around the West coast, being in the car for like four or five hours and then being like, yeah, I'll call you. And then talking for like three hours. Oh, it's a bromance. So, so yeah. <laughs> so Bolus Maximus uh, started because we recognized the, m- the lack of male support specifically in diabetes, uh, diabetes in general, but diabetes is very emotional and it is tied very heavily uh, to your relationships and your mental health. And so those are some things that we're hoping to focus on, but we're going to be talking about all of that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Buckle your (laughs) seatbelts. And and I'll, I'll I'll definitely say, um, you know, I, I actually, going through like this, these different stages of having diabetes, like when I was in college and then where I'm at now, you know, you meet, you meet individuals that make you better and make you realize like you have, you have to kind of, not everybody wants to give back or they get, some people give back in the sense of money. Some people give back in a sense of time. Um, And I think, Anytime that you can time to somebody to help them better themselves, um, you hope that they take that with them and they, and they, and they help to better somebody else. So like, I, I don't think I tell Matt, I appreciate him a lot, but I'm glad that he did reach out to me when he did, because who knows if he didn't, I, we probably wouldn't be talking to you right now. You know, there's a good chance that we would, but there's mm-hmm. a good chance that we wouldn't, you know? So for me, 
always look at, you know, the people that are placed in your lives and then the people that want to do better for others. Like those are very impactful people, you know, and mm-hmm. I think everybody needs those people in their life. And all together, like what we're trying to do with Bolus Maximus, we we understand that there's a huge hole and we didn't have those things for us when we we're growing up. But we know how important they are to the generation that comes after us and that comes after that and that comes after that. So it's very important to us. It's, I think it's really amazing. And this is one of the things that comes out a lot on the show. We have patient advocates on here, you know, every week. And the fact that you go through this pretty harrowing experience often of diagnosis and treatment and life-changing diagnosis as well, you know, that you're able to turn it around into a gift to others. Um, and that the people who we are celebrating on the show are the people who are giving back because there's actually a lot of us who are doing that. And that's really exciting because that community is, as you're saying, Brandon, like, and both of you have experienced this, like that community is what makes it okay. That's what makes it better. For sure. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. What about the management of symptoms and stuff with, with this diagnosis? Cause yeah. Okay. Matt's pointing to Brandon, Brandon, what you want to go first and tell us about how that's looked for you? (laughs) Um, I'll say far as like the vices and things like that. Uh, I was, I remember when I was at, at the university of Michigan and I had a nurse speaking to me, uh, teaching me how to, you know, check my blood sugars, draw up the insulin from a vial, um, kind of date aging myself, uh, cause it was so long ago. <laughs> Matt already uh, aged you guys. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Uh, you as young as you feel. So, That's so true. um, I remember her like walking me through the process of, you know, drawing the, the insulin up, um, uh, from the, from the vial and injecting the shot. And I remember her mentioning something about like an insulin pump. And I was like, oh, really? I, I like technology. This is like old school, oh. like even having to measure yeah. and like use a needle. Yeah. Like that's old yeah. school now. Yeah. So, so I was like, you know, like, can I, can I get that before I leave? And it's like, oh, well, you know, typically we like to see people living with diabetes, you know, their diets and managing for about a year. So no joke, probably right at a year, I had an insulin pump, you know, so I was determined to get that, you know, because I wanted it. I wanted that flexibility. I wanted, you know, I didn't want to have to carry around a syringe and a needle, uh, but hmm. not and to you're, make it. You're also an athlete. So like, that's something where like, you can't stop in the middle of a game to be for, taking for an insulin sure. shot. Yeah. I, I mean, there, there are people that do it. There are people that, there, there are people that, that actually do do it. But wow. you know, I, I didn't think that that was for me. So I wanted to go another, wanted to go another route. Um, but I'll say the inv- the advancement of the technologies has really like man it 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 is super exceeded my expectations even to see where it was 17 years ago and where it's at now it's like light years and it's only getting better you know and I think with the technology I think it makes us um it it takes less stress uh, more stress off of us um, and kind of just let us live our best lives through glucometers, through CGMs, through insulin pumps. Now, I don't want to get it twisted because I feel like, you know, if you manage your diabetes fine without those technologies, that's completely fine. But I do know, you know, in this age that we live in, you know, I don't think a lot of people want to carry around a, a, a vial of insulin and, and syringes if they don't have to. Yeah. Well, and it's also influenced your careers too, because Matt, you're involved in helping others with their, their monitoring and and everything with diabetes as well, aren't you? 
Yeah, in a professional uh, sense, I will very, very strictly state that I am not a medical professional. Uh, I don't yeah, offer any medical advice. Yeah, yeah. Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. That comes. That happens at the top of the show too. So don't okay. worry. <laughs> We're really covering our bases here. Um, I I have to be very careful when I have conversations because I, I have literally you know two dozen conversations every day and have for the last year individuals who are looking to get an insulin pump. Uh, if you call one of the three major manufacturers in the United States that make insulin pumps, uh, you may possibly hear my voice at the other end. Hey, <laughs> well, it's a nice voice, me. so we like it. Yeah, that's oh, that's lovely. Oh, thanks, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but to to what Brandon was saying, like no sixteen year old wants to be found giving himself shots, him or her. Like it's just not high on your list. And then I don't I I think pretty deeply about this. I don't know how I made it through college. I didn't have a pump. I did shots. Um, gonna say confidently that I'm healthy, but I, I can't imagine that I didn't do damage at some point to my body during those four years. Because I think I that's probably yeah, but that's true of everyone, right? Like there are so many people who actually end up getting chronically ill in college. Right. Right. But I, I think my diabetes probably took a step backwards, probably a couple steps backwards. And it, and it didn't set me up very well when I came out of college and lived this fast paced life near New York City, then in New York City, drinking a couple times a week, all the time. <laughs> Things just weren't lining up. Yeah. I was on a pump, but I wasn't crazy about it. And so uh, I've been very lucky to now have used all of the available options, not the latest, but all of the different companies. So I have experience there. Um, and it really helps me talk to patients about it, educate them. Brandon's showing his off right now while Matt's talking about it. And Matt's going to show us his too. Love it. And they're they're so compact. Yeah, it fits in your pocket. We we both wear cases, you know, like this is holster style. I'm a quick draw. I want to pull it out of my holster, check it. (laughs) Looks like a pager. (laughs) To be honest, honest, you know, we, we talk about it being an invisible disease. This is probably the one thing that people can identify because it's usually a wire that they can see or they're like, what are you connected to? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You're bionic, I guess, huh? Yes. <laughs> so I'm curious as well. I mean, like you're mentioning the mental health side of this stuff and, you know, being 16 and, and hiding these diagnoses from people. So it sounds like you're both pretty private um, pers- in your personal lives, you know, about the diagnosis once you got them. And I'm curious about how that's developed over time, how this, the word advocacy started circulating in your lives Um, because obviously you were both looked after by your families. It sounds like, you know, they were looking out for your health, but what about how that has not only affected the relationship with those people who stood up for you, but also with yourselves, like how has that affected self-worth and how, where have you gotten to that place? What's the, the sort of magic formula for getting to that place where you find that you can comfortably talk about this stuff? It's a big question. I know. I, I would say, um, I didn't know how, how important talking about diabetes was uh, until really like going into my sophomore sophomore year in college. Uh, and I was uh, a kid that was 13 years old. He wrote me a letter and it, it touched me. It still touches me. I carry it around with me everywhere. Um, it just made me, it made me realize that I was on a specific stage. I don't know why I was diagnosed. I don't know. I don't know, but I can, I can hang my head in shame and live with the disease, or I can show people that they can do anything that they want to do with the disease. And for me, when I got that letter, it was like, 
I have to do more. Like I look, I look myself in the mirror. It's like, you have to do more. And you know, it wasn't one of those things that I didn't want to do it. It was just that I didn't know how important it was, but that letter forever changed my life. And I appreciate the kid having the courage to write me the letter. Uh, his name's Nate. So uh, hey, Nate. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote me the letter. And uh, at the time he was 13 years old, him and his parents had season tickets to every game. He's been there since he was one. Like he expressed all these things to me. And then he dropped the bomb. I also have type one diabetes. And we, 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 we naturally just gravitated to each other, even though he was five years younger than me, six years younger than me. It didn't matter. We had that instant connection that we had diabetes. And for me, that's when I kind of really just jumped out the gate. And I just started advocating. I started telling my story, sharing it, because what people don't understand is it's very important for you to share your story, even all through your ups and through your downs, because at the end of the day, we all go through different things and we go through different stages in life and we come from different demographics and different backgrounds. But no person is better than you because you have a disease or you come from a certain area or you have a certain amount of money. But for me, I looked at him. He was like my little brother, his family. Those were like my, my parents away from my home, you know, so it, it, it was important to me to realize, like, look, you have it for whatever reason you have it. That's fine. But let's talk about it. Let's share. Let, let's help people get through this tough time of dealing with it, you know, because we all we all handle our chronic illnesses very differently. Some of us take it and we just run with it. Some of us, we hang our head. But who am I to overlook people that aren't ready to kind of pick it up? Sometimes those people, you know, that I don't want to say they need help, but it's okay to to share the things that you're going through with them. I love that. What about you, Matt? And I think like the ability to see the other side is very, it's as a male, it's hard because if you don't talk about it, you don't voice what's, what you feel might be wrong or what you're not agreeing with or, or whatever. Um, personal care is, is, is incredibly challenging as a diabetic because it's all on you. I, I, the, the analogy, and I made this in the, the trust me, I'm sick, but, um, everyone else got an automatic car, you're a manual. And so yeah. that is, that, that is at the end of the day, extremely taxing mentally, physically, emotionally, um, all of your relationships. So personally, and, you know, right after I was diagnosed to Brandon's point, when he said, I got a pump in a year, it took me about six, I went through college without a pump. So my, my personal care took a huge hit by the time I came out of college and really like the dust settled and I was able to then look myself in the mirror, similar to Brandon, my diabetes was like third or fourth on the list. I had other things that I was I was smoking cigarettes stupidly. I had been drinking alcohol excessively. I had to make major life changes and they would ultimately help with my diabetes. So um, those changes helped get me out to California, living a healthier lifestyle. Uh, what's up, green smoothies? So that, <laughs> that's been really powerful, but it had to start somewhere. And so Brandon and I, what we're working on is making sure that you know, probably like the first 16 to 18 months when you get out of your diagnosis, that's a pretty sensitive time. You're learning, you're adapting. If you don't have a running mate, if you're a wild horse running by yourself, you don't know how fast to run, which to, right? You don't know what to do. Like you need, you, you feel like once you get further down the road, you're like, geez, 
why didn't someone just pop up when I was 16 and say, hey, man, we'd love for you to join us once a month, uh, once a year, whatever. And so um, I took a huge dip and now we're coming back up. So my job that I took with uh, Tandem Diabetes Care down here in San Diego, uh, they make an insulin pump, as I was saying before, and I've been using their products. So getting into the community, I've always really, I was always on the fringes, but I had never really been deep. So um, I first started working at camps and then by the time I got to college, really just because the fraternity I was in, our cause was diabetes because there were two other diabetics in the fraternity. Well, that must've been comforting. Well, that's why I was at that school. So after I was diagnosed, my brother, who's a doctor, was connected with another individual, one of his good friends, whose nephew was a type one who snowboarded. And he's like, hey, you, you guys should talk. And we did. And then he became my big brother in my fraternity. He was influential for a lot of people outside of diabetes. And so when, when you think about diabetes, like you can't just start with diabetes. You got to start with something a little less intense. Hmm. Start with something, kind of work your way up to that point. So um, I really got a lot of help there. And so by the time I got out of college, uh, I had to make changes and, and start doing things for myself. So it's just been a, it's been a long road. And I think that mental health, when you think about the actions you can take for yourself and how they potentially could affect others, whether or not you intend to do so, uh, it's very powerful. You may see something, mm. uh, you may hear something, you may read something like Brandon did. Um, yeah. But it's interesting because you've both either had that mentor or mentee role, um, you know, and so being able to sort of see things from both sides, being able to commune with people um, has certainly changed the narrative for both of you. And one thing we didn't mention as well when we were talking about management, Matt, you also have a service dog, don't you? I do work with a dog, yes, um, and, I, and I have now for uh, three and a half, almost four years, uh, four years next year. It's an, it's an incredible uh, relationship to have. I'm incredibly blessed. I'm for sure able to say that most people with diabetes do not use a dog uh, as a form of uh, assistance in, in their therapy. I, I, mine was twofold, right? You just mentioned the mental health stuff, and I'll, I'll just kind of lay it out here. I had gone through and, I, and have gone through some pretty significant things, um, losses and, and some things that were pretty drastic for me that I wasn't prepared for. And um, had I not had a teammate to work with, uh, just in general, just to have a partner and a teammate, um, I, I, I probably wouldn't be where I am. So I, I think that I, I relied very heavily on having somebody to help me with my diabetes who was just, well, he's currently sleeping on my couch. Sorry, Brandon. Um, <laughs> but incredibly, when Brandon comes over, uh, Forrest is a, uh, he'll, he'll be five in November. He's a Weimariner. He can smell Brandon and my, the changes in our bloods. So he, he can smell both of us. And it's incredible because we got to check our devices and we're like, no, nah, we're good. And then like 10, 15 minutes, he's just sitting there looking at us and I'm like, Brandon, what's your blood sugar? Yeah. And so we're like, oh, I'm at it. So it's, it's, it's incredible. I could talk for days about it, but uh, I'm very blessed uh, and, and thankful to have such a teammate. Maybe one day you'll get a chance to see it, Lawrence. It's, 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 it's definitely different and it's interesting, but it's, it's really cool to know that, you know, when we look outside the technology pieces, you know, that you actually have a dog 
that can sense these things, you yeah. know. And, and and Matt does a he does a heck of a job, you know, as far as training. There's a lot yeah. that goes into that, you know, that that I didn't that I I probably wouldn't have known anything about um, if I didn't have opportunity to meet Matt or a couple other people in the diabetes community uh, with service dogs. Mm. I mean, it's interesting because there is this, you know, there's this redemptive quality of these relationships. That's it's so beautiful. I'm also wondering, you know, what about those the family relationships? Did you guys find when you were younger, relying on your families, but also dealing with stigmas attached to having a diagnosis as a teen with type one, like, was that something that deepened your relationships because these were people who knew about it? Or was it alienating because you were nervous to talk about it? I I think, I think first getting started, you know, far as Matt, Matt hit it on the head, you know, that first like 16, probably, probably the 18 months, you know, with, with them being diagnosed. It's one of those things, like, like I said, some people take it and they just run with it. Like I took mine as like diabetes is my football and I just took it and I ran with it. You know, it was like, it's no, it's no turning back. It's nothing that's going to stop me. You know, that was my mentality that I took right out the gate. And, you know, not saying that if you don't take that mentality that you're not going to be successful because success is whatever you whatever you feel is success is, you know. But for me, it was like I couldn't lay that burden on my mother. I remember very vividly being in the hospital and seeing her cry after she came in and spoke to the doctor. And, you know, all I could do was like just come for my mom and hop off that bed and was like, Mom, I promise you I'm going to be okay. I promise you we're going to be okay, You know, but you also. Um, look at it like, well, maybe they don't think I can do this, or maybe they don't think because I have diabetes, I shouldn't be doing this, or I can't do this. And, you know, a lot of my friends, you know, very early on checking my blood sugar when I was first diagnosed, I was checking like 10 times a day. You know, I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. So, you know, I wanted to be on top of it. I was very active. I played for sports in high school. So, you know, my friends were like, oh, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I had to really realize, like, I had to think. I sat back and I was like, now, if that was my friend and they were doing what I was doing, I would probably be asking all of those questions, too. So I kind of looked at it like like in the very beginning, I was like, man, they just nosy. But it was just that they cared about me as a person and as their friend. And they wanted to make sure that I was OK. I think if anything, it's brought my relationships closer with individuals. And not only has it brought it closer with them, they they are more aware of things that they do and people around them that have diabetes. So I think it's like a gift and a curse, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. I think everyone who's tuning in who has that spoony experience, like that, that gift and curse thing. I mean, it is that double-edged sword. So to answer the question about, you know, relationships, especially within the family, the first time, and, and I've really, I've thought about it, but I've never verbalized this. So I'm, I'm happy to do this now. I would probably say that the first real the first time I really felt like I had a true relationship with my parents was after I was diagnosed. Oh wow. And so I think because they were both caretakers and had taken care of so many people, I spent, you know, holidays and days off. We went to the hospital. Uh we would do work, we would we would, you know, go to different floors in the pediatric ward. Uh, my brother and I spent a lot of time there. Um I saw those things go on, but then when I became a patient who would have a lifelong journey ahead of them, uh, my parents, they were, it was like they were outside our house looking in. 
And, and so they tried to strengthen that relationship and I'm very thankful that they did. So, um, yeah. And I, 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 so I think that that's, it's powerful. Anybody listening, uh, Give, give mom, give dad a hug, tell me you love them, your uncles, your brother, your sister, your kids, uh, your grandparents, anybody that's special, anyone that's ever asked you about what you're going through, uh, tell them how you feel about them, tell them you appreciate them, tell them you love them. Hmm. I love that. So let me ask how the day-to-day is. Like we know sort of the bigger picture now, right? Like what is the day-to-day like? I know you've got your dog, right? Like Forrest is there and he's keeping an eye on you, Matt. You know, I know you guys both have your monitors now, but how are you balancing your body's needs against social pressure and work and, you know, this sort of cultural ideal that we have of hitting the ground running and like being out there doing stuff all the time and having to prioritize your body first. I mean, I know that's something you guys have been through, like learning to make your body your first priority, but yeah. What is that day-to-day like? I, I think um, when you look at it, you know, I think anybody that, that lives with a chronic illness or, you know, has to monitor something, monitor something, you know, 24-7, you automatically think of, like, exhaustion. You think of anxiety. You think of sleepless, restless nights. You think of how am I going to make it to the next day? You know, how how am I going to get through this? And I think it starts with a mindset, you know, of, just you have to do whatever you have to do, you know, and you don't owe an explanation to anybody uh, for explaining how you feel because some people will be like, oh, well, so-and-so has it and they don't, well, you know, I'm not so-and-so and so-and-so hasn't went through what I went through and I don't go through what they go through, you know, but we look at it from stress. We look at it from working out. We looking at it, look at it from hanging out with friends. We look at it from having sex. We look at it from trying to hang out. Like all of these things play a play a role in monitoring monitoring and, and managing our blood sugars. Mm. One thing can throw everything off completely. You know, so to say that we have it down I don't care who you are living with type one diabetes. You could be living with it for 80 years. You don't have it down, you know, because so many things can throw it off at any given time. But I will say me personally, I just try to go and win each every win each day. And I think if I, if I put my best foot forward every day, then that's going to get me toward that end goal where I'm trying to get to. And, um, I'm I'm still in this. I don't know if you guys ever or who's ever listening has ever seen Friday, but uh he 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 passed away, uh John Witherspoon. Uh his name was Willie Jones in the movie. You 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 fight every single day and you 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 may lose, but the thing is you you live to fight another day. And you know, it is deep and it's cliche, but it's not really, you know, it's not it's not super deep. It's like you have it's an true. opportunity you have an opportunity to make the next day better than it was the day before. And if it was a great day, you have a, you have another opportunity to make it even greater, you Mm -hmm. know? So it it just comes down to at the end of the day, like don't beat yourself up for whatever you're going through chronic illness or no chronic illness, you know, but just try to get better each and every day. That's, and that's all you can do. And then, you know, you, you win some and you lose some, but you, but you, you definitely, you live to fight another day. That is a mindset shift though, isn't it? It's that thing of like going, it's not a bad thing. This is an opportunity. This isn't like, oh, this isn't just a bad day. This is an opportunity for tomorrow to be better. 
sure. I think that's a really important thing for people to understand. For sure. It's almost about, like, yeah, go back, go for it, Matt. Brandon, can you see what I wrote down on my paper here? Because it says every day is different. You can make tomorrow better than yesterday. So if, if you start every day thinking that regardless what happens, like I personally have, like I said before, I've, I've just gone through some things uh, mentally to have to compensate for not going through the proper process. I've done these mental gymnastics to get myself to this place. Um, I only started therapy this year. And what? That's amazing. But if I started to tell you the things behind it, you would be like, wow, why would you have waited that long? Right. And so. Why did you wait that long? Got to be ready. Yeah. Got to be ready. I, I, I wasn't. <clears throat> the first time I ever made an appointment to see a, a therapist uh, was back in 2009. Hmm. And I made it for a, a sip. Um, uh, May 11th, the morning of May 11th. And it just coincidentally was the same morning my mother passed. Wow. And so I never, I never re booked. I never looked into, Sure. I never went back down that road. And then I've had significant losses since then. And I got to a point where I was like eating myself alive. Every yeah. single day was challenging mentally, emotionally. Uh, I had no one around me. There's just, there's too many things. So to now see where I am, um, sober, trying very hard to not uh, partake in, in any alcohol, uh, which is something that really wasn't a problem. But someone who lives in Southern California, marijuana is everywhere. And, yeah. and if you're listening and, and you're not a fan of, of cannabis, uh, very understandable. Uh, there are two sides to that plant. I'm currently utilizing the CBD mm. uh, instead of the THC. And so for me personally... Uh, that's a huge shift. Most of my days were cloudy. Yeah. But, it, but in a very positive way, I was a very high functioning stoner. Right. And so I was using pot as a way to mask that. And even when my ex brought it up and told me about it and said, you know, what, like, can you try to do something about this? Um, I just d- denied it happening and just was like, nah, that's, that's not what's really going on. Hmm news break. That's what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. Brandon, do you have something to throw in there about mental health support? I'm 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 going to leave it, but there are two sides to that plant though. That's for sure. I completely agree. I mean, it's interesting. (laughs) I love that you've been open and talking about this stuff because I mean, we've touched on the mental health a little bit here and it's interesting because it sounds like when you guys were teenage kids, like you were kids diagnosed with a life-changing disease and no one offered you therapy? No one. Yeah. Well, our therapy was probably our friends and family, which it has continued to be for the last 15, 17, you know, almost 20 years. Hmm. So at 34 and 33 years old, we're like, well, what about the 16 year olds right now who are submerged in whatever new social media platform is coming out. Let's not give them any clout. Thank you. (laughs) So like that sort of stuff, like just kills me. And, um, you know, I bring mental health. I cannot stress it enough. Brandon and I've talked a lot about it. And I think, I think, uh, looking, looking at it too, you know, I'm glad you brought that up, Lauren, because, you know, I think people look at it like mental health, like, Oh, it's, it's diabetes or, Oh, it's cancer. Oh, you don't know 
one, you don't know what somebody is already going through before they're kind of smacked with that. So you don't know how they're going to react. And, you know, I, you know, I, I had to go to therapy growing up. My, you know, my parents made me like, especially like in elementary school and things like that, you know, and I didn't, I didn't really understand it then why I was doing it. I get it now um, as I'm older, a lot older. Uh, but I also say, you know, coming out the gate, you know, these, these resources kind of need to be there for individuals. You know, we're talking 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, like they're getting ready to start another chapter in their life once they leave like high school. So if they're not, if they don't have it in order, you know, and Matt touched on it, it's going to be difficult to kind of put it in gear once you get to college, you know, or you're in that, as we like to say, the real world, you know, it's going to be a little bit more difficult, you know, but I think if you have that professional experience, like dealing with the therapist and then also having that guidance and that help from your family and support, you know, it makes a big difference. And I, something that's very therapeutic to me is like just helping out in the community, you know, especially obviously, yes, I'm going to say the diabetes community, but helping in general. But, you know, uh, I get a lot, I get a lot from that. Uh, and I know Matt does too, by just being able to help and, and just share, you know, it may, it makes you feel good because it's like, you know what, it's all it took is a little bit to, to help somebody out and put a smile on their face, you know? So I, I, I think it's important to say though, and as somebody who very, very clearly just stated uh, from his personal experience, even helping within the community, going to camps, attending events, speaking at conferences, that's not therapy. Uh, and, and, and that is something that I was looking at, like, how much more can I do to satisfy how down I feel? And that quest was, was very challenging. And I, to, to talk about mental health, I, I would say I don't have a lot of channels and avenues to talk about stuff like this, but this is something I would have a perfect opportunity to address. Uh, when I was diagnosed, I was 16. I was in high school. I had two best friends, uh, Dan and Matt. And I, Lived with Dan freshman year in college. Uh, Matt, Dan, and I lived together until senior year, the year after. And then I lived with Dan. Uh, those were my best friends. And um, uh, two years ago, Dan took his own life. And that's like a piece of your diagnosis, the friends, the support system that you had at that point. It was so easy for him to be there. Didn't know what he was doing. But it was it was so challenging for him to realize that we would have been there for him. We wanted to. We just didn't know. And so um, as somebody who's lost five males to that same problem, wow. that, is, that is something that we're hoping to bridge some gaps between mental and, and physical health. Yeah. Uh, the way you take care of yourself. I didn't play in the NFL. I've certainly not done Ninja Warrior. So I can't <laughs> fancy myself as, as big and buff. Um, but I, I know that you don't, you don't have to look like Brandon to be considered a man. You don't, you don't have to be the strongest, the best. And that's part of why we call it Bolus Maximus. Hmm. Is that like 300-esque style thought process that men were chiseled and perfect and didn't show hmm. emotions? Uh, no, no. Yeah. So that, that's something that we really hope to bring some light to. I mean, that's something also, we're going to talk about healthcare in a minute too, but it's also an access issue, isn't it? When it comes to the mental health side of stuff. Cause it's like, it sounds like you guys both eventually had access to mental health care, even though it wasn't immediately prescribed or referred, if you will. But, um, 
you know, not everyone has health insurance that even covers that kind of care. So what happens when you get a life-changing diagnosis and you don't even have access to that support or you don't, you can't afford it, you know, and these create roadblocks. Yes. Yes, they yeah, do. I, I, tr- I, I tried to do it in Los Angeles through Medicaid and I was extremely unsuccessful. And Brandon, and I, we just had a great conversation about this on our last podcast. We'll link um, it on the website yeah, for the episode. And, and it was a really good conversation because access is probably... Uh, knowledge about it and access are, are right there. And, you know, Br- Brandon being part of, you know, doing what he's doing right now and that sort of stuff, like just knowing about it is powerful. And that's yeah. incredible. And also, I guess, giving yourself permission to, right? Like knowing that you can go and seek help, but also knowing that, and not just for mental health, actually, also for like, if you're having a physical issue that you're not addressing, like knowing that it's okay to go and seek help and that there's going to be a community there for you and that there are ways to get support. And, and, and I just wanted to jump in off of that, what you said, Lauren, I think that the biggest thing is uh, just being aware, you know, I think people want to do the right thing, but they're not aware that they're, that they're not progressing. Um, You know, sometimes when it comes from somebody else, you know, like Matt, when you said your ex has said something, it's just like, ah, nah, not, that's not, that's not it. But you know, sometimes you're not even conscious of you're so used to doing whatever it is that you don't understand that you're just pushing it under and just keep pushing it under and further away. Mm -hmm. You know? So I think sometimes I don't think it's that people don't want to change. It's just that they're not aware of the things that they're going through or what they're doing. You know, people are not trained. We are not, we are not educated. We are not trained on how to deal with significant change. We, we just, mm. uh, unless I've missed some class in school, we're just not. There should there, have been a degree option, really. There is no way for a young male or female or anybody living with one of these chronic illnesses, if you already feel sick, if you already feel like you're a burden on the healthcare system, you may not want to put your foot a little bit further and say, I need more help. And it, it has taken me almost seven to almost 18 years to do that. That's why we're going to every mountaintop and screaming it. So, um, yeah, it's extremely important. Very, very beneficial too. Absolutely. So we're going to get more into it, but I want to know before we get too deep into that, this is an invisible diagnosis aside from, you know, the wires and the pumps that you guys mentioned earlier that people can see that are sort of a signifier of your diagnoses. Have either of you been in positions where you've been confronted and forced to validate the existence of your diagnosis to someone who didn't get it because they couldn't see it? I I haven't. Uh, I think a lot of people, when I tell them that I have diabetes, because I'm, I'm very open. Uh, I just like to just get it out the gate. There is no questions. There is no, you know, I'm going to let you know. Uh, I wear it as a badge of honor at the end of the day. You know, I don't know a lot of people without diabetes that could have done some of the things that I've done or traveled the road that I've traveled. So, you know, for me, yeah, I am proud of what I've done and what I've been able to accomplish, but I also look at it, you know, in a twofold that if I can do it, then you can do it better than I've done it, you know? And I think that's the message, you know, we like to pass along, but I've never, I've never been, you know, kind of put in a situation or, you know, told anything because I do have it. Uh, but I do know, you know, some stories of some individuals that have, you know, they, it, it wasn't good. And I'm I'm glad that it wasn't me because they, they probably handled it a lot better than I would have. What about I, you, Matt? I, I don't think I've ever been put in a position. Well, let, let me, uh, let me take a step back there. 
I'm thinking about devices. I work with a dog, which means I have to go places that most people don't go with an animal. And so as far as validation, for me, I have to answer. I don't, I don't have to, but by doing so, it grants me access under the ADA laws. Um, ask two questions. I can answer them. I typically state after they ask the second question, very specifically, I'm a type one diabetic. And if I have, if I can access my pump, I'll kind of motion towards it. Like, Hey, like stick my hip out. Like you see, you've seen this. That is for me more of like, uh, Hey, uh, I'm a diabetic. Most people don't say anything uh, after that second question. But I can I can tell you that probably fifty to sixty percent of the places that I go into, people don't ask the right questions, and then they ask why I have an animal, and then compare it to someone else that they know who lives with diabetes. Right. And I'm like because oh, everyone yeah. with diabetes has the same experience, right? That's <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that you're bringing this up, and I, I I like that you are bringing it up because you said they're not asking the right questions. This is a great teaching moment. What are the right questions? Uh, for in, in relationship to a dog or. Yeah. If yeah so if, yeah. Well, you've got a service animal, you're walking into a place that maybe they don't want your dog in there. What is the right question that someone should ask under ADA compliant laws? Yeah, sure. If you're an employee or an individual who owns and operates a uh, public facing and an, an entity that, that serves the public uh, under the ADA law, uh, you are only legally allowed to ask two questions. And the problem is most people, when they go in, they, they don't ask them. So the first question would be, uh, is the dog required because of a disability? And I usually say, oh, I'm sorry. That's usually the first question. And I say, yes, I'm a type one diabetic motion to the hip. What's up? And then the second question is, has the animal been trained to perform a, spe- a specific task? That question cannot, and I do not mean any slight towards, but that is the question that someone with an emotional support animal can't answer. And so when you go into an establishment, that second question, unfortunately, most emotional support animals are not trained specifically to do anything. They just provide support by being there, which I can validate. I know individuals who have them, who work with them. I just mentioned 20 minutes ago that my dog was a massive form of emotional support for me. They work. The problem is when people put a little vest on and they go somewhere and the people don't ask the right questions and they go, is that a service dog? And they look back and they go, yep. That harms my team. That puts my team in danger because some random woman in whatever target who comes up to me, who the last three dogs she saw were fake service dogs. And she got to pet them. I very like, please, you, you know, it's against the law to touch this animal, to look at him in the eyes or distract him from his job. No. So I think the right questions always ask to touch someone else's animal. May I touch Thank you? you. May yeah. Touch that's you. a really big one. That's huge. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and when you ask that question, you engage with the human. You don't yeah. put your hand out. You cannot put your hand t- towards the dog and you can't make eye contact with the dog. You have to engage with the person. And nine times out of 10, that person's going to go, yeah, you can pet them unless you run into me on a Tuesday afternoon. I'm a little salty. And I'm like, no, back off. Because you're allowed to say no also. No, I, well, I, I mean, that's, that's pretty common. I just get back off. Yeah. yeah. That's, but I, I, 
I appreciate that we're like taking this moment to remind people about some really important basics. Like even if it's not a service dog, ask before you touch someone's dog, because this is how people end up getting attacked. They make eye contact. It's red as aggressive, you know, and it's like, it's not the dog's fault, but it happens all the time. Your dog bit me. Yeah. Did you ask to touch it? No, exactly. Because no one asked to touch the dog ever. (laughs) Dogs need to get permission too. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's interesting that neither of you have experienced this thing of like people not believing that you are lying about your diagnoses or like, it's like fake or whatever. It sounds like that's possibly because people know about diabetes, right? Like if it were something that were less publicized. Oh, you know what? I think, I think maybe I overlooked this and I think Brandon probably has experienced this as well. We have been told that we don't look like diabetics. (laughs) That's a great one. That's so, one of my favorite. Oh, you don't look sick. You don't look like you got this thing. That's, 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 cla- that's the classic one. And that's yeah. when I just kind of pull up my shirt and then you see the pump sites and the CGM sites. I'm like, oh, okay. You, you, you really are a diabetic. You're just using that as an excuse to show off how athletic you are. <laughs> He's like, I was on Ninja Warrior. <laughs> but I mean, it, it's true. It's like this thing of, and so many people in the chronic illness community we have that where people are like, yeah, but you don't look, you look great. You look great. Oh, thank you. Some days I feel like shit, but that's just how (laughs) it is. Yeah. So let's get into the healthcare system then. Let's do this. (laughs) We're going to dig in. First of all, I want to talk about privilege and prejudice. And I'm interested, especially because like you guys probably have very different experiences in general on the day to day as well. But you know, have you guys had experiences that are examples of either your privilege in the healthcare system or people being prejudiced against you because of the way you present? I mean, Matt, you're a Caucasian guy going into the healthcare system. Brandon is a person of color going into the healthcare system. These are two very different circumstances. Do you think that some of your experiences might have been different if you presented differently? Um, I think I've been able I've been able to be on I've been on both sides of the fence as far as, you know, with like public health care uh, or state health care and then also um, having everything completely taken care of. And I would say I, I didn't know how much of an eye opener it was until I had to kind of cross that cross over the fence, you know, jump the fence, uh, as you would say. And there are some challenges. There are huge challenges and, and difficulties and trying to get the equipment, trying to, you know, get, they call it durable medical equipment as far as pumps and CGMs and all of, all of the stuff that really in my eyes is a necessity to living a better life with diabetes, which they make it extremely complicated for absolutely no reason. But to rewind, when I didn't have to go through that was when I played football so like at Michigan State, I didn't have to worry about getting test strips, getting insulin pump supplies, getting CGM supplies. You know, I didn't have to worry about that. And also when I played professionally, I didn't have to worry about those things. Uh, so I was kind of sheltered. I was kind of guarded in that regard, but I was able to see the other side. And it was just like, man, you know, I wasn't, it was frustrating, but it's like, if I feel this way, then I know it's millions of other people that feel this way. And and this sucks. Like it really sucks. So, you know, 
that's another reason why, you know, being an advocate in this space is, is very important because I want to help that, that kid that's in the city of Detroit or, you know, in this, in the city of LA that he need, like he or she needs these things and it'd take a huge burden off of them, but it'd take a huge burden off of their parents as well. You know, so those are the things that people don't really, you know, they don't see every day. They don't, they don't understand. Like, like if I don't have insulin, I'm dead. You know, that's, that's just the reality. You know, people mm-hmm. think, oh, it's, it's diabetes. But there's a there's a price that that comes with that. There's a price to live every day. And there's a price to get this high priced insulin that I need to live every day. So, you know, it it, it, it never stops. It never stops. Yeah, I mean, that's I, what you're addressing. There are access issues mainly, too. It's like, you know, that often these access issues are drawn along racial lines, too. True. Yeah. And low and low economic areas too you know because you know i think sometimes you know race does play a part in it like our our health system is definitely uh racially divided for sure there there is no arguing that but we look at you know far as uh people having access to certain things you know you you just don't have it you know low economic area you just don't have it or the options that are there they don't really get to choose what they need it's yeah. based off of this is okay. This is what I'm prescribing. This is what you get. This is what's covered by insurance. This is what you get. And it might not even be the best thing for them, but it's what's covered. And that's the other part that, that, that really, really irks me a lot because mm-hmm. it's like, who is somebody to tell somebody what they need? Um, you know, and they're just going to give them something based off of whatever guidelines that they have to go by, but it doesn't really help them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's, and that's also education too. Like, if you're in a more impoverished situation financially, maybe you don't necessarily have the access or the education to know that you can access these other devices. Matt, I know you wanted to chime in there. Talk to us about it. Coincidentally, I think Brandon and I, one of the reasons that him and I have worked so well together is because we were able to see different sides of things and and really open our minds to that. Uh, So as, as you stated, as a young white man at 16 years old, uh, my father was an ear, nose, and throat physician, uh, and my mother was a nurse. If the system was designed for you, it's like tailor made for you. If something happened, like whose house are we driving to? We're going to the hospital. We're pulling into the doctor's lot. We're going right in. Like that's not a problem. That's what I grew up in. I also, as I mentioned before, would grow up going into the hospital to help support other uh, other people. So they knew you and seeing what they were going through. Yeah, mm-hmm. so there was a lot involved there. My parents did a really good job of preparing me because as I was leaving their care, we'll say, um, you know, as, as college was, was winding down, uh, they were being very, very clear that as a diabetic, you need good health care or, or things will be challenging. Not you won't succeed, not you won't live a happy, healthy life. It will be challenging. And I just drew a picture here that just has a dollar sign. And then it has an equal sign to an insulin pump and then another equal sign to a smiley face. It is as simple as that. If money is there for somebody to get a device, you're going to be, you likely are going to be happy or or at least better suited to succeed. And the, the problem is it's not anymore. It's not just about money because being on both sides of the fence here, when I was in Los Angeles and lost my job, uh, three years ago, working at a little startup in Venice, called Snapchat. I oh, little startup. I was in a position where we talked before about having to deal with change. Um, I lost my father and then I lost my job. 
And so I was on Cobra and I missed my first payment by one day. And I remember crying on the phone to them to explain to them, I don't understand. Well, what, what am I supposed to do now? And so that feeling when it's really cold outside and they go, well, you're going to be able to survive. We're going to lock you outside until you figure it out. That, that's essentially what it felt like. I started, I had to buy insulin out of pocket and I bought some medical supplies out of pocket. And so at that point, I was like, holy moly. So fast forward from there until where I am now, I almost went almost two years without working. I got all my supplies from the state. Most, most of that time, I was getting my supplies. So for about a year and a half, I got my supplies from the state. The first six months were treacherous. And as we talk about access, just having the knowledge of how to maneuver through the system, that's something I'm blessed. That is a privilege for me to see, to understand, to be a part of now working at a company that I literally talk about insurance all day. Tell me who, who you have. How long have you had the insulin pump? Okay, I'm going to tell you your options. I'm going to also tell you what else you could do. So the first time I was set up with Medicaid in Los Angeles, and I started to try to find what doctor I wanted to see, how wrong was I to think I had a choice? Yeah, I was going to say, you thought you had options on Medicaid? I don't think so. There was one person I was allowed to see. And for every time I had to go see. So for me to see those sides growing up in that, in that lavish, lush lifestyle, and then being in a position of not having any of that or even the option. And I think that's probably where Brandon and I have found some common ground to then grow and blow this up. Because if the options aren't there for you to even know about and not hear about or be educated on, how can you even know what happiness, what that smile on your own face might feel or look like? And I and 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 not to drive this or, or use this as a as a poor example, but I think as Brandon and I have both uh, volunteered for a nonprofit called Riding on Insulin. Uh, it's a ski and snowboard, mountain bike, and uh, I do believe you're wearing the t-shirt right now, right? I am. Yes. <laughs> so I am. I'm very excited to be a part of that organization. Uh, but Brandon and I have had some really good conversations because as a black man, when Brandon goes to watch mountain in Massachusetts, he probably wasn't viewed as like the normal, like what's this big dude doing here? Are you lost? And that's hurtful because he's an athletic guy for his third time on a mountain. He's sending me pictures. I'm like, I'm just, I'm just trying to get into the eggs games, man. Yeah. Let, let her brother in. You've so. already conquered the NFL. Like what's next? <laughs> so my point with that is like with Brandon, like I hope very soon when we're able to, to actually go up into the mountains and experience that, that we can do that together. I, I voiced this to him and I, and I said that the feeling I get, from floating down a mountain just on pure powder is so it's ecstasy. It is unbelievable. The feeling that you would experience. I go, people that live in the hood don't even know what they don't even know that that's an option to feel like that. They, and I don't mean to mean to make it negatively, uh, but there aren't mountains in the ghetto. There aren't mountains in underserved and underpoverished communities uh, who are, who are looking for help. And that's the type of thing where you, it's, it's eye-opening. And so the healthcare system, flawed. But while we can't change it from the, from, the, from the inside, we can sure as heck do a lot from the outside right now. And, and I think you brought up some valid points, Matt. You know, just trying to connect 
the dots and the pieces, you know, um, we can't make everything. We can't make everything on a system that's been built uh, so long ago. Changes are going to come, but they're going to come at a very, very slow rate. But what we can fix outside of that broken system is to show others that they can do whatever it is that they want to do, no matter what, you know, and also supply them with that education to get the best services possible that they can and to have that support, you know, and that's, that's ultimately what we aim to do in anything that we do. We just want to make somebody feel happier than they were before they interacted with us or anybody on our team. It's not exclusive. We can't be the only ones happy. <laughs> uh, Brandon and I, like I, I'm a, I'm a, a 34 year old male. I'm happy because I'm surrounded by positive people. I have a medical device to use. It wasn't always there. I wasn't having, always haven't been as clear as I am mentally, but having those things to help get me where I am now, I, you can't pay for that. You can't pay for someone to show up and, and want to help you and, and say, and put their arm out and say, as to what Brandon has said so many times, um, you know, when him and I, we have plans to, 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 to do things in communities around the United States in the next couple of years. That's a goal for us. We want to go places, but different messages are going to be heard from different mouths uh, because Brandon and I, we don't have the same story. We have the same message rather, but we don't have the same story. And so because of that, it opens more doors for us to, to work as a team. Like why, why can't we, why can't I make sure that everybody who doesn't look like Brandon know that it's not exclusive? If we all come from the same, the same background or the same area, how can we drive a legit change? You have to be able to see perspectives from different places in different demographics and different income levels. If you don't take the time to do that, everybody is a human. Now, based upon off of that, it's your action. You treat an individual. And I'm not saying if somebody treats you nasty that you need to match them back. But, hey, okay, have a, have a great day. You know what I mean? Type of thing. But we have to understand that I think around the world, we all want the same thing. We want to be happy. We want to be healthy. And we should always want to help each other, no matter what it is. I don't care if it's playing a video game. Show somebody. Help somebody. Show somebody something that they don't know how to do. So that means if you're talking to somebody that's that's grew up in suburbia, then maybe you can. You have the opportunity to help somebody in the hood or in the ghetto or in a low economic area. Like as humans, we should want the same thing for everybody. And, and that's health, that's happiness, and that's teaching the next person after us no matter what. But it's interesting because it sounds like what you guys are also saying is that you're filling gaps that the health care system is leaving, right? That like, sure. there are these gaps and flaws. And I mean, aside from what we've, you guys have both touched on, which is the price of insulin. Um, would you say that like some of this pharmaceutical price gouging, as well as the inequities in the healthcare system from gender to race and beyond, would you say that these are all tantamount to a public health crisis? Yes. I mean, sure. you know, how many how many people are going to be diabetic? And what we talk about twenty fifty, like it, it's a it's an to think about how poor the average American can take care of themselves yet still clear the bar of normalcy in this United States right now. It's it's almost sickening. I mean, COVID's uh, been a good uh, a good indicator, right? 
But at this, yeah, but at the same time, it's really blown some people out of proportion. What mm. they thought was okay is now really overstepping boundaries for what's mm. safe and healthy. And the hardest part is, especially as males, uh, I don't like admitting when I'm wrong, but I will. <laughs> it's an important step that I've taken in my life to do. You're that. so evolved. Um, <laughs> I'm, uh, we're, we're I'm like very proud. I'm very proud to yeah. be chatting with you right now. <laughs> Thanks, Lauren. Thank you. But that is a powerful piece because if you can't identify that there may not be something that you know everything about or there may be something that you don't know everything about, what are you going to do now? And, mm-hmm. and the best thing you can do is open your mind and, and, and listen and engage and understand. Mm, absolutely. What about, I mean, we're talking about a lot of the ways the healthcare system isn't working for patients. Are there ways, particularly given your experiences as type 1 diabetics, that the healthcare system has worked. I mean, it sounds like Matt, you may have missed that Cobra payment, but you were able to get coverage on your devices and oh, stuff eventually. But it sounds like maybe some of the red tape might have been part of the problem. Just yeah, as we were kind of talking before, like I applied for Medicaid twice. The first time I was denied, and then I wrote a letter. They asked me to write a letter, and I resubmitted it. Um, at that point. I was, I was in a safe place mentally, physically, I would be in a safe place. It was like, okay, now just go get your insulin. Holy crap. You're not going to charge me for my insulin. Wait, what? So in a really positive way, yeah, it was, I, the, the system was able to help me. I shouldn't be the one who's feeling beneficial or that they're benefiting from Medicaid. Not me. I, I shouldn't be the one who feels like Medicaid is doing something for me. There are single mothers and fathers and grandparents and caregivers who have young children or adults at home that they oversee and, and, and help support that live with diabetes and the whole family could be struggling. So it is really sensitive subject, Lauren. Um, it's tough because as much as we look at it and we say, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm privileged right now to have good insurance through work and to be in this position the one thing that the healthcare system has done is it's, it's still there. <laughs> it means it's still, it's evolving. Uh, not necessarily in is the it? way that we want. Not there we go. Okay. And maybe not in the way we want, but it is evolving. Got you. Got it's you. Evolving. And the, the best thing is there's a lot of things that spur out from that main line of, 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 of the process where that normally happens. And so there, there's people that are coding their own insulin pumps. You know, there are people that are getting old insulin pumps and connecting them and coding them themselves. Those are the sort of things that I'm, that I'm kind of referencing there. That's where the healthcare system says, what are those guys doing over there? Uh, we took the devices that you told us to use and we are using them how we see fit. Hmm. And so, I don't know. To be honest with you, I just wanted to say no. <laughs> but I try yeah, like, but I feel like to. It, you're allowed know, to say that there are, there are no ways in which it's actually, I mean, you're allowed to not feel good about it. Like that's part of the reason I asked the question. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm you got me over here shaking in my boots, Matt. Cause I don't know if, if my, if my, uh, Medicare is going to get approved. I hope I don't have to write a letter, <laughs> but if I do, I got you. No, it's going to come from the bottom of my heart. And then whatever happens from there is not on me. 
But that's also, do you know what though? This is the thing is like that you're in a position where you have to write a letter even. That's emotional labor when you're already managing a chronic illness and managing other people's expectations of you, let alone your own expectations of yourself. And then you're asked by this giant system to pour your heart out. Yeah. That can be really confronting. And and I think, uh, you know, it's one of those things is almost like, so you're calling me a liar. I'm lying. Is that you calling me a liar? You know, so it doesn't, you're right. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily feel good or that you make just above what you can make. And it's like, come on, man. Are we, are we really talking about this? Is this serious right now? We're talking, yeah. I made a dollar fifty over with the market. Like we're talking about, we're literally talking about a dollar fifty, but this is life or death. Yeah. You know? So yeah, is the system, the system is a broken a broken vehicle that needs a lot of new parts, period, <laughs> period. I like that metaphor. I guess there's some hope in that metaphor that some of the parts can eventually be replaced and we can get on all electric, right? <laughs> Tesla. Yeah, I know. We're looking for the Tesla of healthcare here. <laughs> the affordable <laughs> Tesla. <laughs> the affordable Tesla. <laughs> exactly. So, let's talk about your advocacy work, guys. I know Matt mentioned that you guys have like events that you're going to be doing around the country communities you're going to be engaging with you work with writing insulin um you know what has this advocacy work looked like for you guys aside from just publicly speaking about what you're going through um how are you what are the specific ways in which you're giving back to the community uh, this I is also you... by the way a great place to plug bolus maximus oh, oh. <laughs> So uh, I'll start off by saying I kind of jumped into the advocacy back when I was at Michigan State and I received that letter, that letter from Nate. And like I said, it made me realize the platform that I was on to help give back, you know, to share my story, um, to understand from, you know, a different perspective, because it was through JDRF. And, you know, I'm not sure how much you know about JDRF, Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. But at that time, that was kind of like, my introduction to JDRF when that was through Nate and his family and his mother was a volunteer, a very, very dedicated volunteer. Um, like most volunteers are for any nonprofit, you know, cause they have a passion for what they're doing and they believe in whatever the cause may be um, that they're fighting for. And like I said, it just opened, it just opened me up and I was able to see things from a different lens. You know, I was able to see it from, I was a Michigan State football player. I had type 1 diabetes. I was an African-American. Like, that's a pretty interesting, compelling story, you know, to actually go out and speak to people that don't look like you. You know, I would be engaged if it was somebody that looked like me, let alone somebody that doesn't look like me telling that story. You know, so the advocacy work started very early for me, and I loved it. I loved every every single part of it. I love being able to share the stories, talk to individuals, especially especially the kids, because I think a lot of people don't invest the time in the kids, but the kids are our future. So if you don't have time to deal with them, you don't have the patience to deal with them. If you don't have the, hey, stop, cut that out. You shouldn't be doing it. You know, um, if you don't have the time to do that, then you can't complain about a lot of the stuff that's going on. For me, I think helping, I got that from my mother, but I also got it from my, from my father and a little bit from my brother, you know, so just jumping in and doing things that just comes second nature. 
uh, I had the opportunity to do some stuff with JDRF. I was a volunteer for them for 12 years. I've been able to do some volunteer work with the ADA, uh, which is the American Diabetes Association as well. And then I've also done a little work with Beyond Type 1 as well. I actually had the opportunity to work uh, for JDRF, uh, Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. And, uh, I was able to be involved in some stuff that, that was at a very high level, um, with getting, uh, they call it the special diabetes program, the SDP. And it's to lower, to help lower the costs, uh, for people that need the durable medical equipment, which is a huge, huge. And, you know, they raise a lot of money for research, but, you know, at the end of the day, I knew what what my goal was as as a player. You have to know, you know, what your roles are, what you're great at, what what do you bring to the table? My role was to actually inspire, motivate, and and educate people, but then also have them advocate for what we're doing. And, and that was something that was very, very, very big for me, even when I took a role with JDRF um, as an outreach manager when I was in New England. Fast forward a little bit. Uh, where we're at now, as far as with Bolus Maximus, you know, our goal is to, to motivate and inspire men living with diabetes and also to educate them. You know, it's not, it's not easy living with this disease. You know, I'll be lying if I said that it was, but it doesn't mean that there aren't other people out there that are either going through what you're going through, been through what you're going through, or going to go through what you have been through. And, you know, to have that support system, a safe, a safe place to come and speak about whatever it is that, that you're dealing with, whether it's diabetes related or not diabetes related, it just feels good to the core to understand that there is a group out there for you. There is a support system out there for you. And it's like Bolus Maximus, we're here, you know, for whatever it is that you need. I love that. What about you, Matt? Uh, so, yeah, I appreciate it. That's a great question to, to ask because we, nobody really sees, there aren't photos and videos being made of, of all the work that we've put in and, and what we've done. We just know in our hearts that the way to inspire people to continue to do that is just put your best foot forward, continuously put your best foot forward. The first time I was ever introduced to like being an advocate for diabetes was I don't think I've ever publicly said it. So shortly after um, I was diagnosed, there was a younger guy who was in middle school. I think we're in middle school or maybe he was like a freshman in high school. And I, yeah, he was in, yeah, he must've been a freshman. He must've been like going into his freshman year and he was diagnosed. What's up Chuck. And so I, his, I was connected with him and came and sat in his kitchen for a little while, maybe like 30 minutes. And then I was like, okay, do I go now? Like, what? so, but that was the first time I was like, Hey man, like, you know, I've been doing this. Um, you could probably do it too. I think we could do it. Right. We can do this. So that was the first time, but shortly after I, I get just propelled into a position where the Rhode Island diabetes foundation had a camp every year. And called Camp Surefire. What's up, Greg? What's up uh, to all of the kids that have uh, young men and women who have attended Camp Surefire? It's an amazing experience. My second year there, though, I was directing the camp. So wow. the first, you know, first year there, I was a volunteer, and I was like, "Wow, I never even went to sleepaway camp as my as a kid. Uh, this is all new to me." I was like, "Wow, that moth is the size of a baseball. Is that normal?" <laughs> So that's the sort of stuff for me that like I was all new. It was all different. And so for the first time I went into an advocacy position and then learned more about myself. I was like, whoa, 
I got a lot to learn. So that was part of the time where I was like doing really well. I did that for like six years. The best week of my entire year was that week at camp every year. And so I kind of got away from it. I moved to New York City and I wasn't really in this, the space. I wasn't advocating in New York City. I wasn't even like talking to other diabetics, really. I was just the guys that I knew. And a young man named Corey Zapaka, what's up, Corey, who's now an extremely talented and successful producer um, at a major science platform. You know, he visited me in New York City where he was about to start living. And I remember him coming up into my third floor apartment, little walk up. It's up New York City. And I was embarrassed because my blood sugars were like all over the place. And he, and, and he had no idea like what was going through my head or what ultimately would be the thought process afterwards. But that really changed things for me because I felt like I did so well at camp. And then I go, well, how, how, how do you do like, there's, you know, 51 other weeks in the year. What are you going to do that time? So I worked in digital media and advertising for for 10, 10 years. I, I started in print at Time Warner and I ended with augmented reality lenses with Snapchat. So working in digital media and understanding how brands and companies reach viewers, I, I was on that bus the whole time. I was always there just watching what was happening. So I got to a point where, you know, 2016, 2017, uh, I'm working at Snapchat. I'm not really crazy about putting stuff out there that doesn't support health or wellness, mental health or wellness in, in any way. And then I reach out to Brandon. What's up, man? <laughs> Are you upset too? I, I knew that when I, shortly after that, him, him being involved with 2017, I was involved with uh, uh, an organization and I was looking around the, 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 the short list of people that I was a part of and I, I, I did not see any black individuals. And that was the first time for me where I was like, geez, how are we going to call? I'm going to say that's a pretty common narrative in patient advocacy, right? It's like hashtag patient, patient advocacy. So white, like it is a very white dominated space. Yeah. And I thought that looking overall at the group, you know, there were a couple individuals who lived out of the country. um, But overall, it, it overwhelmingly shockingly like me. And I said, that is not right. It's not not right that like you guys did what you did. It's just you're blind to how poor this looks because you could make it a, a huge improvement. And so that was probably the last email I had sent to them and said, hey, listen, I've got an individual named Brandon Denson. I'd love to recommend he takes my place. That's not something that Brandon needed anybody to do, but I felt like he had already, uh, him and I had been talking about it. I was like, let's try to get you in here, bro. Like let you you need to be here. No one else is sharing the passion that I have. And so, uh, and I realized that that was something for Brandon and I to connect with and then start Bolus Maximus. And that's where we are today. So for us, we've really, the last two and a half years, it's mostly been through conversation. COVID was the catalyst. It put us in a position to start hosting uh, video calls every Sunday. Started like, you know, four or five guys. And, and, and now we have 25 20 to 25 guys show up on Sunday. We have some, feet, we have some women and, and some women as well. There as well. We are open to everybody, but we are male focused uh, just so that male, it's a safe space. 
come talk yeah. and open up. So that's really where we started. Um, but we are definitely, as you said, and, and I mentioned before, we're hoping to do some in-person uh, activities around the country. We're starting here in California. Baby yeah, absolutely. Steps. I, I do. I do want to, uh, I completely forgot about something most recently, uh, from our last podcast that we did with Quisha Umemba. Um, she's doing some awesome stuff too in the diabetes space and she focuses on people of color and she held a, she had a summit back in July. Very, very, very great summit that I had to, uh, I had the opportunity to partake in and it, it was amazing. Uh, one to see somebody kind of trailblazing the space that that typically people don't trailblaze in just because I don't think that they think it's a problem. Uh, but there's a huge problem, uh, as we mentioned about healthcare, uh, healthcare services, and just the system in general um, on who they serve to. And at the end of the day, um, she's starting a, a nonprofit. It's called Did Diversity and Diabetes. And uh, God, Forgive me for this. Her, the founder, her name, I can't think of her last name, but it's Casey. The, her first name is Casey. I, I can't think we'll, of her. We'll find her of, and we can link her to last it. name. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're doing, they're doing some awesome stuff, you know, stuff that you, you typically don't see in general, but specifically in the diabetes space. So, you know, I definitely want to make sure I threw that in there as well. Mm, that's awesome. We're going to wrap things up very shortly, but I like to end with a couple of top three lists. And I was wondering if you guys could give us your top three tips for someone who maybe they suspect something's going on with their health. Maybe they are diagnosed with diabetes type one or otherwise. What are your top three tips for living well with a chronic illness? Mm. I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think, Number one is you have to be honest with yourself first and foremost. And I think that comes from being aware. Uh, So you have to be honest. Uh, I don't think anybody likes being told like, oh, you're not doing that right. Or that's wrong. Oh, that's all messed up. But the reality of it is if somebody's giving you that advice, then I wouldn't just overlook it. You know, I would, I would take the time to, to actually figure out if the, if there is something that you could do better to improve on, because if somebody's telling you that, um, I hope they wouldn't just be saying that to say that. Uh, I think the other thing is trust your gut. Go with your gut. Um, you know, if you feel like something is off, don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to hop on Google. Obviously, Google is not a licensed medical professional, but <laughs> but at the end of the day, they could lead you to somebody that could get you the assistance that you need. And I think third is just be patient. You know, be patient with whatever it is. You know, I know for people living with diabetes, it's like you have to be patient. This is a patient. I think any chronic illness, you have to be patient, but diabetes, it, there's so many emotions. There's so many ups and downs and I, no pun intended. I mean, literally my blood sugar started at 150 is 208 now. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've just been talking, you know, so you have to be patient and, you know, at the end of the day, like just put that best foot forward, you know, no matter, no matter what you do. Those are, those are really good ones. I, I, I would say talk about it. You have, you have to be able to verbalize how you're feeling. No one can tell you how you are feeling. So if you don't feel right, um, if you ever feel like you need help, 
there, there should be somebody in your life. I don't want to say there has to be, but there should be somebody in your life that you feel comfortable speaking with. If there isn't, um, there are avenues in, in ways to find somebody, um, but, but in, in, especially within the healthcare system. So talk about it. Um, I'd say the second thing would be accept change and embrace help. So accept the fact that things will change or that they could change. Not Maybe they won't even change. Just being open to the fact that the door might swing open and hit you in the face, you don't, you don't, you don't want to be unprepared, right? You want to know that, that what's, what's coming may be emotionally unstable, but embracing the help is how you get through it. And so um, the last thing I would say is failure means you can improve. If you fail, you can improve. It oh, doesn't, I love that. <laughs> yeah. It does not mean that you can't do something. It just means do it again. Try it again. Um, and we've, we've talked a lot, Brandon and I have talked a lot about getting knocked down, making sure you get back up as diabetics. We feel like we just get hammered down, but I can't, I can't speak for anybody with other chronic illnesses. You know, I feel for everybody, any without chronic illnesses and with everybody's going through stuff, but for anybody, failure does not mean you can't progress. Like you can improve. Mm. That's, it's so funny. My, my like life mantra is that ancient Japanese proverb fall down seven times stand up eight. But like, and again, that's that idea of opportunity, isn't it? That Brandon talked about earlier. I love that. So one other top three list, what are three things you guys have obviously had to make lifestyle adjustments because of your diagnoses, but three things that you were totally unwilling to compromise on. So these can be like indulgences or like a guilty pleasure or, you know, comfort activities what are three things that you turn to when you need to light yourself up? I think we all have, uh, <laughs> I think we all like food. <laughs> I, I love food. Uh, it can be pizza. It could be special type of salads. It could be, uh, man, I just got to throw this out there. I love sweets. I love them. <laughs> <laughs> I love them. I love them. Yeah. Uh, maybe too much. Uh, but Definitely, you know, definitely food, something I don't think I'll ever give up. Uh, maybe the type of foods I eat, but, you know, definitely not going to give those up. Uh, and, and I would say um, rollerblading, I'll never give that up. I'm going to roll this thing till the wheels fall off. Uh, literally, that <laughs> happened to me a couple of weeks ago. And my oh, wheels no. fell off. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Sin City Skate Shop, they, they heard from me. Uh, and oh, <laughs> they yeah. got me taken care of because that could have been a bad situation. Mm. And um, I don't really have any. Uh, I mean, it sounds like athletics in general play a huge role for you, too. Like, and that's mm. something where, like, you have to be aware of your blood sugars. Yeah, I, I would say definitely just just being aware of anything with my diabetes. You know, uh, I, I would say that from going to go work out to, you know, to eating, to uh, about getting ready to go to sleep, you know, just being, just being aware, uh, just being aware in general. And this is where we also remind everyone that you were the first black man with type one diabetes to compete on American Ninja Warrior, which is so freaking cool. I can't even handle it. I have to, I I do have to, um, let me correct that. I know I wasn't the first one to actually do it, but I was the first one to be aired as an African-American type gotcha. of diabetic. I do, I do know that uh, the guy that I know, he went on, I think, a year, either a year prior to me or a year after me. Um, and he was a type 1 diabetic, but his storyline was a little bit different. Uh, they catered right. it more towards his father, um, which 
I was kind of upset that they did that, but the fact that they didn't kind of share, you know, his own struggles and, mm-hmm. you know, trials and tribulations. I feel like that was very important as well. Yeah. Well, thank you for correcting me on that one, but no, it's all, no, it's still, it's all still really exciting. I'm no, like, no. you know, the, but it's also this idea of opportunity and achievement that like, for sure. you can do these hard things, even with this chronic diagnosis, like mm-hmm. that's really cool. Yes, it is. Yeah. All right. What about you, Matt? Um, this one's pretty easy. I hope, hopefully everyone's paying attention here. Pizza, snowboarding and believing in the snow Yeti. <laughs> great <laughs> let, let me let me clarify the last one in reality i just wanted to say yeti um cre- creativity and imag- imagination Th- those would be two things that i'll never ever ever give up uh, as an artist as, as somebody who's who's done a lot of work uh to help express himself and help others express themselves through art the, I'll, I'll i could never ever ever do that so but definitely pizza. I'll, I'll I'll keep eating pizza like once a like once a maybe quarter or like. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm having pizza tonight, you guys. Oh, what, I'm like my friends are just picking it up. <laughs> what kind? What kind of pizza? That makes I don't know. Food. I haven't checked the, the text oh. chain, but I, I let my oh, best friend. You on mute. Don't say it. I'm putting you on mute. I don't want to hear it. I'm having something. <laughs> I, don't I don't know. I don't know. I'm just let. I'm letting them surprise me. We might, we might, when she, if she comes to San Diego, we might have to take her to the spot, Matt, and get that, get some of that pizza and wings. Yeah, we got some good places down here. Brandon and I, we, so a lot of the days are spent or the afternoons. Brandon gets out of work, comes over to my place. We work for a couple hours. Um, I've done my personal stuff the day, and then we work. And so that's, it's important for us to just be on this, like, this, the same page. We're not all the time, but we get back right into the driver's seat and we're like, cool. Uh, tomorrow's a new day. We approach it as such and then benefit from that fact every day. So I love that. All right. Oh, guys. And, we love food. Oh, and, we love and you food. love food. Yeah. I mean, yeah, hi. Yeah. yeah. Who doesn't? That's what keeps us going. <laughs> so what is your ask for people tuning into this episode today? What can they do to support you guys and your community and your ongoing work? I think, just knowing that we're going to, we're, we're trying to make some noise for men with diabetes. Uh, I got a really nice message the other day from a mother of a young boy with diabetes. She said, I am very excited. You're doing what you're doing. And I hadn't really thought about the impact for, for how real life responses will come back and how impactful it will be like right away. Um, They've not attended a meeting. They've not uh, seen, or, you know, one of us in person, we've never even met them. Um, but to know that that mother now knows that in the future, if her son needs help from a male perspective and it can't be done through the household or the healthcare system, that there's going to be a community for him. And we're not exclusive to males, but we are driven to help males. So I'd say well, our ask is that people understand that, that things need to change and that we're hoping that they do. We can't do it alone. We need help. We need volunteers. Um, mm. and, and through that, we'll, we'll hopefully be able to address more communities throughout the United States, their needs, and, and then improvements that we possibly can either help voice or, or connect the dots. Yeah. Oh, you want to add anything there, Brandon? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to, I was going to throw socials out there, but. Oh yeah, uh, please, please. Uh, well, you know what? Let's let Brandon answer that question. Then I'll, I'll give you an opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Don't worry about it. Um, you know, like Matt said, like the messages you get, 
uh, you know, not that we we need a pat on the back or we need recognition. We we know there's problems out there. Uh, and for us, I think either you're you're making things worse or you're trying to fix it. And I think if you're trying to create a solution to a problem, then those are that that says a lot about you. I received a message. I haven't even shared this with Matt. I received a message the other day uh, for our call that we had on Sunday. And I'm going to read it because um, I really didn't know how to address it. But it may, it makes me feel good on the path that we're going and the path that we've been down to kind of, you know, bring this community together and help out in any way that we possibly can. She said our our conversation that we had on Sunday was uh, it was about branding awareness and is about tattoos and diabetes. And I got a I got a message from a mother and it says, this is something my son would have loved. He just passed away on September 7th from type one diabetes. And it made me, I I don't need to know why he passed away. I don't need to know what happened. I don't need to know what their relationship was. All I want is for everybody that has diabetes or has a relationship to diabetes. I want them to be a part of what we're doing. It's not by far. I'm not saying anything that we're doing is easy because if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. It's not easy. But we understand that there's a hole and there's a void and we're trying to fill it. We're not saying that we're better than anybody else. We're not saying that we're special or anything like that. We just understand that there's a problem and we just want to bridge the gap and fix it from different demographics, from different perspectives, from different races, different cultures, different demographics. That's it. You know, we all live with this disease and we want to we want to live a healthy, wealthy life. And at the end of the day, you have to be around people that understand and that don't understand because the people that understand, they can help out. And once you help those individuals out, those people can help more people out. And then it just becomes this chain reaction. And that, and that's all, that's all we want to do. You know, with Bolus Maximus, it's about let us inspire you so you can inspire and motivate others. So, you know, that, that's all I have. I love that. Can you tell everyone where they can find you guys? Yeah, so we are currently on a couple different social media platforms. Currently right now on Instagram at Bolus, B-O-L-U-S, period, Maximus, M-A-X-I-M-U-S. Wow. And then (laughs) um, you can find us at, it's going to be Bolus, B-O-L-U-S-M, just the letter M, dot org. Real simple, bolusm.org. And that's a way to, to just stay in contact with us. doesn't matter where you are. If you are a caregiver, if you know a friend, a friend of a friend, your younger brother has a friend, they, you better, I'm telling you right now, you better be talking to them about this. Uh, it's not, it's really, it's not something that we want anyone to miss this boat. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad Brandon shared what he shared about I'm heartbroken to know that that's the case. And uh, as yeah. we, as we can continue to do this, um, you know, we're, we're going to be on, on different social media platforms and trying to con- connect with people, but, um, the bolus maximus at gmail.com. You want to email us directly. It's the bolus maximus at gmail.com. And, but this and, uh, is also, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Brandon. If, and if you do miss the boat the first time, we're going to figure out a way to turn the boat around and come back and scoop you up. So just, that. just keep that in mind. Or if you can swim, you you know, you can jump in. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And also, I mean, it 
goes without saying, it sounds like you guys are also turning this podcast into a nonprofit. Right, so right now, yeah. yeah. So the, the, the paperwork has been filed. We, we are moving forward here. We feel that programs that we could develop ultimately will live on past what our efforts can provide. And so that that's empowering for us to know that we can do something to give back to the community, not just like attend something and talk. Um, we've, we've put countless hours. I mean, since March, probably three to four times a week, a couple hours every day, we're, we're working on this. Even more than that sometimes. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so I, I know all about that life. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so we, we want people to know that we're putting this effort in, not so that, you know, that we're, we're happy about it. We are doing it because we know that men need to talk about their emotions. They need to talk about diabetes. Um, we need to be a little more vulnerable. And that's something I think right now that, that men could hear probably 10 times over so that maybe on the 11th or 12th time, they do it. Yeah. <laughs> so. well, it's, it's, I think we're up to 15 marketing touches now. <laughs> yeah. to get the message. You're the one with a marketing background, Matt. So you know better, but I mean, that's you guys. I am endlessly impressed by what you're doing. And I'm so proud that you have been able to share this time with us today. And so excited to watch Bolus Maximus to continue to grow and, and to see how you will continue to serve your community. And um, I'm just so thrilled that you've been able to be here today. So thank you for honoring us with your presence. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Lauren. It's really great to stay connected. Again, I, I want to shout out uh, Erica and Sarah from uh, Arlo Productions who put us in contact. Um, Trust Me I'm Sick is out. And uh, yeah. and it's now streaming on Soul Pancake, which is so freaking amazing. Amazing. Yeah, it kind of gives me goosebumps knowing that the, uh, the team that put that together had done such a wonderful job to help showcase yeah. such an important message. Um, and, and like yourself, Lauren, thank you for putting yourself out there and having these conversations. So. Thank you both so much. Thank you. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.